It's great to see you guys. Thanks for being here tonight. It's funny. Sometimes the Lord will speak to me in funny things, like it just clears a bell. And tonight was one of those nights we're sitting back there, and you know me like I'm right now on a kick of God's goodness. And so I love when, I have no idea if you guys have any clue what we're teaching right now. But you know, like the You're a Good, Good Father songs come up. And the You are good, you know, like we're singing this every year. And the Lord's like, there are people in this room who are singing the words with their mouth, but their heart doesn't believe it. You never let me down, except last week. Just like being burdened, like that there are people that we, our theology in our heart doesn't match the words that are coming out of our mouths. On the screens that, God, you are good, that you never let me down. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that God never lets you down? Do you really believe that he's good, 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 like perfect in all your ways? Probably the greatest bridge ever, right? You're perfect. And I'm like swinging hands over there. I'm like so pumped on this. And, and I'm just like, man, you're perfect in all your ways, but does our theology really believe it? I started two weeks ago just talking about, like, what is God's role in trials really? Really, though, what is God's role in trials? And the response, I had no idea that so many people were wrestling with this idea. And so then I had, like, responses and questions, like, well, what about this? And so the second week was like, well, let's, let's set the, the record straight on joy in trials. Because we've totally missed interpreted the scriptures about joy. My email box blows up. I'm like getting hold up. Like people are like, what about this? And there's one gal who sent me an email. I'm like responding back at like midnight because it was like so articulate. And I've learned a lot of you guys know your Bible, which is rat. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing is that do you remember that Satan used scripture against Jesus? There's certain scriptures in the Bible that act as little thorns in our faith. And it's funny, there's two thorns that I've really identified that most of you are like, I love this, I want to believe this. And, I, and these are the, the emails and the text messages I get. I want to believe this. Help me believe this and interpret this. And so I, no one needs to believe my theology. Let me tell you that. Like, I'm not here to persuade you. I'm here to preach what I'm passionate about. It's your life. You can take and leave whatever we say here tonight, but my responsibility is to give you what's burdened on my heart for the goodness of God and the theology of what his role is in trials, tribulations, suffering, and to address the thorns in our flesh of our faith about, wait, is God really good in this passage? Help me understand this. So I offer up both my time, my phone, my email, which is eric at epiclife.org. Super easy. I love theology. I love talking about it. I'm not offended by questions. I, there's no greater like, discussion I can have about the things of God. I don't have a job to lose, so I will like, take your disagreements all day long. I'm not afraid. But there are two instances in the Bible. So the first two weeks, right, are what is God's roles in trials? None. Zero. What's our joy in trials? You're not supposed to be joyful for your trials. You're supposed to be joyful during your trials. Because God is not the one who's given them to you. But there are two passages, though. Two completely clear passages in the Bible that contradict these teachings. And the problem is, is like one is from God the Father and the other one's from Jesus. One from the Old Testament, one from the New. I can't like weasel out my way into like one of the Old Covenants. And without a doubt, they prove that God gives Satan permission to attack us. 
And the second thing is sickness and suffering is for God's glory. These are the two thorns that repeatedly, week after week, I see in the flesh of the faith. And the scriptures seem to prove it without a doubt. Or do they? I don't know. Let's look at one tonight. So we're going to look at these, and I'm going to ask the question tonight first, does God give Satan permission to attack us? That's the main one, like, but wait, like, Satan has rule and authority. Is God giving Satan permission to attack us? And this comes from my favorite book in the Bible and probably my favorite person in the Bible, and if you know me, I'm being totally sarcastic right now, which is Job. I have been resisting teaching on Job for so long, and I've given up. Because there's one passage, a couple actually in Job, that we need to talk about. Because it continues to be a thorn. I'm going to give it to you. This is Job 1, 6-12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about the earth and walking around it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is none like him in all the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you blessed the works of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land? But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he surely will curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we just want the truth. That's all we want, Jesus. God, would you help our hearts be in tune with your voice and your character. And Lord, we stand from position, Lord, that you are good and not that you are guilty. Lord, help us to Adjust our theology, Lord. We, we thank you for wisdom, but Lord, we, we also just ask that you would not allow the cleverness and the, the terms and the systems that we build to explain you to come against us. And Lord, we just pray that our minds and our hearts would be available and open to, to hearing from you, Jesus. Amen. Amen? All right, so what do we do here? This is one of those passages in Scripture like, I'm just going to pass by that. <laughs> Pretend I didn't read that. Pretend that that wasn't there. So we're in trouble, aren't we? This is a really tough passage. Here we have God saying, Have you considered my servant Job? Behold, all that I have is in your power. Because here God is, and Satan walks up. I don't know how that happens, but God asks Satan, Where do you come from? And here now, God and Satan are just chit-chatting, right? They're just like, oh, looking around. What's up? What's, you? What's up with you? Did you see the game last night? It was awesome. You know, like, they're like having conversations. So one, like the context is really funny here. Apparently, Satan doesn't know who to attack. <laughs> Have you noticed that? Satan comes up to God and is like, huh, I don't know what to do. And God apparently starts coming with suggestions. <laughs> Bill... Mm. Sam, no. Jimmy, no. Job, Job, yeah. Have you considered Job? Have you considered Job? He's like righteous. He fears me. 
And he volunteers Job. And Satan's reply is like, ooh, now tell me about him. Right? But that's not what Satan said. God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan was like, no, I haven't. Tell me about him. Satan knew everything about Job. Do you see that? Satan knew about Job's prosperity, his possessions, his work. Notice that God esteemed him for his character. He fears and shuns evil. And Satan says, yeah, but he's got a lot of stuff. Satan knew all about Job's possessions. But God esteemed him for his character. Something's wrong here. Satan knew of God's blessings on Job's life. He named him. Satan was an expert on Job. Remember, Satan was roaming around the earth. Hmm, that almost sounds like a passage in the New Testament that Satan roars around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Hmm, that's interesting. We'll come back to that one later. But was Satan ignorant of Job? No way. He knew all about him. He was a blessed man, and that's exactly why Satan came after him. And the first thing you need to know tonight is that God's blessings become beacons for the enemy. You have a powerful night here tonight. You have a powerful night on Sunday night or wherever you are. You have a great move encounter with God. I promise you, Satan follows the smell of God's blessing. Isn't it convenient that when Jesus begins his ministry, before he'd done anything, right, before Jesus did a single miracle, turned anything into wine, any of that stuff, that here comes the Holy Spirit and says, this is my son whom I well pleased. Remember? Jesus had only built sheds at that point. And we don't even know if they were good sheds either. I'll stay away from that one for a little bit. But God affirms his pleasure and his identity in who Jesus was before he'd done anything. And then, what happens right after that? The temptation. Isn't that convenient? That God does something powerful in Jesus' life, declares him son and well-pleased, and then he's tempted. I'm telling you, the move of God in your life will be followed by Satan's attempt to try and steal it from you. It's like how salvation goes. You know there's one passage in all the Bible. It talks about why people are not saved. Do you know this? Luke chapter 8, 11. I'm totally off script. Sorry, guys. It says, The parable is seed cast on the, the, the sides of the road and the rocks. And like the disciples are like, I don't understand what you're saying. I thought we're talking about you know, salvation. You're talking about birds and seeds. Like, what does this all mean? And Jesus says, This is what the parable is. The seeds is the word of God. Those standing beside the road are those who've heard. And then the devil comes and steals the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Seeds cast, Satan comes. Isn't that interesting? Satan, where do you come from? Roaming the earth. Hmm. I found your highly blessed man who has all these possessions, has all these wonderful things. That's kind of interesting. It's interesting that God, that Jesus comes to give life on life more abundantly, but the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. How does Satan have anything to steal if God isn't giving? It's God's design that he gives, and it's Satan's design that he steals. 
Satan wants to knock down those who stand tall. But don't you know that Job was known as a righteous man? Job 1.3 is not just, he's not just any man. Look what Job 1.3 says about Job. He says that, and that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Job just wasn't kind of a good guy. He was recognized. He was in stature. He stood tall. Satan picked on the man who had the greatest distance to fall. Satan, where do you come from? Roaming the earth? Have you considered my Job? Oh, I know all about Job. It's the man who has the most to lose in your kingdom, actually. Are you with me? And Job's destruction would be famous. Is it not? Satan attacked Job because it posed posed the greatest harm to God's character. Because at that time, Job was God's greatest example for blessing. He was the greatest man in all the East. We actually get the story of Job wrong. Because we think the story of Job is about Job losing all of his stuff. I don't know what it's like to lose like 2,000 oxen, but apparently it's pretty bad. We get the story of all the things that Job lost, but we miss the hidden narrative in the story, which is that the faith of Job's friends and family was destroyed. The legacy lives on today. The book of Job is the single greatest reference to that God sends you trials and partners with the devil to harm you. The legacy of Job is not that he lost a lot of stuff. The legacy of the book of Job is that God is actually partnered with the devil and given him permission to attack you, which lives on to this day. The casualty wasn't his stuff. Even his wife, in chapter 2, gave up. Only in chapter 2, says, curse God and die. Thanks for the encouragement. Yeah. Let's go to a prayer meeting to help turn that around or something. But here's the truth is that Satan wants to make an example out of you so that others will lose your faith. Why is it that Satan comes after a great move in your life? It's because Satan wants to invalidate what God did. Satan wants to provide doubt in everyone who looks at your life and say, nah, not really. Look, the day after he has this great move of God, he totally blows it. Some transformation, huh? We've all been there, haven't we? For these great experiences. And no wonder the next day we can have the highest highs on a one night and then the next day have our lowest lows. Have you been there? Think, oh, that's a kind of a coincidence. Mm-mm, no way. But something is still wrong with God's statement. Aren't you kind of troubled by it? Have you considered my servant Job? Like Satan needed help coming up with ideas. And we know that Satan obviously knew him. This one statement is perhaps responsible for the most damage that we have in our theology that says that God offers up his own children to be attacked by Satan. Well, God permits it, and we put all sorts of lipstick on this pig. God, like, permits it, and he's okay with it, and, you know, he's like, you know, whatever, and it's like, it's, it's really confusing. But it all centers around this passage. It says, have you considered my servant Job? Now, if Satan knew everything about Job, why would God volunteer Job as a candidate to be attacked? That makes no sense. 
Clearly God knew that Satan was familiar with Job, and that's because he didn't. This is one of the few places that our English translation of the Bible fails us, and it fails us really, really bad. Have you considered my servant Job? Now, if you know that we speak English, profound, right? Good word. We speak English, but the original Bible text is in Hebrew and Greek, right? And we have Greek, Hebrew, and people translate it to try and figure out what it means, and they put it into English, and then we do that. But we're also, like, our scriptures, though, are, are subject to man's interpretation. Did you know that? There's, like, things like people phrase things and put things, and it's, we're kind of up to those who interpret it. And so this, have you considered my servant Job, there's something peculiar about it. If you go back to the Hebrew, it actually, in the Hebrew, it's, I actually put the, that there. It looks like one of those tattoos, right? Exactly. You do not want this tattooed on your body. I'll tell you that much. But it's pronounced as sum lave al. Sum lave al. Sum lave al. Perhaps the worst translation from Hebrew into English. Now, our English translators, they said, have you considered my servant Job? You know what this really means? It says, why have you set your heart against my servant Job? Why have you set your heart against my servant Job? Completely transforms the meaning, doesn't it? If I wouldn't break this mic, I'd probably try to drop it because I've never done that and I've always wanted to say that. I really want to. I won't. Because there's more. <laughs> Job 1.7 should be translated, and we have it up here. Why have you set your heart upon my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Isn't that amazing? But all of our Bibles, unless you're reading the, there's a couple, the YLT, it's the Young's literal translation. It's tough to read, but it tries to take every word for word. And translate it. Anytime our theology is challenged, we need to go back and figure out if there's a little bit of human error in there. Because I promise you, sometimes there are. There is. But this is totally a different idea. God is not volunteering Job. God is asking Satan why his heart is set upon him. And Satan replied, because Job has the most to lose. Now when Satan recounts all that Job has, it makes sense. Why have you set your heart against my servant Job? He's blameless and upright. And Job replies back for all the things that Job has to lose. Satan always aims to steal God's blessings wherever they are. He's called a thief for a reason. I'm troubled that so many people don't want to put, like, Satan's name on things. Like, okay, I had traffic coming here. I'm not, like, rebuking Satan on the 50, okay? But it's amazing how many people don't want to name the person who's a thief who steals and kills and destroys. It's like, do you believe in Satan? Yeah. Well, can you give me an example of when he stole from you, destroyed something, 
No. He's a thief by definition. He's not a retired thief. We know that. Now remember, Satan challenged God to set forth his hand upon Job. Satan said, you put your hand upon Job and watch him. He'll curse you to your face. And God's response was, behold, all that he has is in your power. This is the second troubling thing this passage, right? The first was, have you considered my servant Job? And then later he says, behold, all that he has is in your power. This is another place where our translation fails us because what we think in our mind is that God is like, pulled away his divine protection. But suddenly, God has offered up Job to Satan. That is not what happens here at all. This word behold doesn't mean a change or transition or change of state. It actually means observe what already is. That's interesting. It doesn't mean what we think it all is at all. The word means see what already is. What does that mean? It means that Job already was in the power and authority of Satan. Why? Because Job lived in a world that accepted sin into the world. God really here is just referencing the Garden of Eden. Man is the one who made Satan powerful. Amen? Man came and sacrificed his power and authority over to the devil to have rulership over the world because God said to man, have dominion and rule over the world. And he squandered it. He let Satan come in and steal it. And so here God is like, Job is already in your power. Who empowered Satan? Man empowered Satan. Satan was empowered by man, not God. If you get your theology about this, the rest of your life will make sense when you encounter trials. God, why have you empowered him? You need a history lesson. Man empowered him. I gave the earth to you, Psalm 115, 16, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth has been given over to man. What did man do with it? Don't blame God, blame man. At the fall, man lost all of his power. And at this time, by the time we reach Job, Satan is already powerful. Already has everything he needs to do to steal, to kill, and destroy. And Satan tried to get God to smite him, right? He tried to get God to do it, but God wasn't buying it. But here's the trouble is that later, Job says another silly thing. Job says this in in Job 2.10. It says, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? This is another commonly referenced passage when we talk about God giving us adversity. Well, clearly, Job, righteous man. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? So the theologian wants to say here, well, Job was righteous and upright. Of course. God gives adversity because Job said it. Now you have to be careful in the Bible because if you don't have context, you can actually believe some funky things. Did you know that in Ecclesiastes 10, 10, 19 says money is the answer to everything? It's in the Bible. Money is the answer to everything. There's a lot of the Psalms where like there's some depressing things in the Psalms. Don't go build your theology over someone else's lament. Because God accepts and allows you to, uh, to feel your authentic pain. And he allowed those things to be documented. 
But people say, well, isn't this proof God sends adversity, even if it's in the form of Satan? It's a Bible verse. It must be true. Let me pause real quick. Anybody like trivia? All right, I got a little Bible trivia for you. When was the first mention of Satan in the Bible? When was the first mention of Satan in the Bible? Is anybody in this room brave enough to suggest an answer? Nope, before that. Nope, before that. So 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 21, I'm sorry, 1 Chronicles 21, is the first place your Bible shows the word Satan. Now in Genesis, it uses the word serpent, okay? But in Chronicles, is the first time in your Bible, as you flip through it, that it says the word Satan. That Satan rose up and David faced him. The only problem is, how many know that your Bible isn't chronological? Your Bible is actually categorical. It's all lumped together in like, like books. And Job is actually considered a poem for some reason. I don't know why. Here's something that's mind-blowing. Where does the book of Job belong in chronological order? It's after Genesis 10. The book of Job doesn't happen way later, deep, like in the middle. You know, like you find, like, where does this? It's like in the middle. Job is not like this far off thing. It's after Genesis 10 in the timeline, before Moses. Before anything is where Job falls, okay? It's in the city of Uz, U-Z. <laughs> However you say that. What does that mean? Is it means the first recorded name of Satan appears in Job. This is really important. Genesis, we never called him Satan. It's called the serpent, right? You can look it up. Greek, Hebrew words, well, it's only Hebrew there, but it's serpent. The very first time Satan is ever named by name is in Job. What does that mean? It means that Job didn't know Satan existed. I know some of you guys are comfortable. Hang with me. This is the single truth that should change everything that you think and view about Job. Hang with me. Job was very much aware of God. Very much aware. But as far as he knew, God was the only power in existence. Job was a righteous man. He was obedient to God, but he wasn't aware that there was another option. And so it makes sense that when Job says, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? He's like, there's really only God. Job had no reason to believe anything else would cause his destruction. What other explanation at this point would Job have? Now you might be saying, well, he must have known the story of Adam and Eve, okay? Must have known at least a serpent did something bad. Must have known something went down. I believe that's probably true. I believe he probably knew that somewhere in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, his great, 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 you know, parents bit an apple or something 
and we had the fall. I'm sure he knew that. But he would not have known that the serpent, even if he was cognizant of the serpent, he would not have known the serpent, the serpent, let me start over, he would not have known the serpent was capable of his destruction. Are you with me? Job would not have known the that, gosh, I don't know why this one's so hard for me. Job would not have known the serpent, if he had known the serpent, was capable of his destruction. Why? It's because the book of Job was Satan's first recorded act of killing, stealing, and destroying. Are you with me? You can't find A, Satan mentioned anywhere prior to Job because it's Genesis 10. You have to go to the Garden of Eden. And at that point, Satan's only works was deceiving, not stealing, killing, and destroying. Where do you think Jesus got the terms to label Satan stealing, killing, and destroying? We go back to the first original occurrence. If this doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what to tell you. If you don't, if this doesn't like flip your switch, I don't know. I'm just going to stop there. Are you with me? The book of Job is the first recorded instance where Satan gained his reputation as being a thief, a killer, and a destroyer. So when I say Job had no idea it would be Satan, it's because Satan wasn't mentioned, and even if he's thinking of the serpent, the serpent never was known to steal, kill, and destroy. It's interesting to know, to further back up this, is that Satan, inclusive of the serpent, mentions 18 times in the Old Testament. 18 times. 14 of those times, it's in the book of Job. And it's only mentioned the first two chapters. After Satan has his way in stealing, killing, and destroying, Satan is never mentioned. Not one person, not one person, either Job, Job's wife, Job's friends, no one mentions Satan. But yet he's mentioned 14 times out of 18 times in the entire Old Testament. And no one called it? Job didn't know who was stealing from him. Jesus gives us the instruction how to fight the devil, right? That's one of the great things that he gave us, is how to resist the devil. Why did Job have such utter destruction? It's because he didn't know what to resist. You cannot resist what you don't think exists. I'm telling I'm messing some of you guys up. You guys got the look on your faces. You're like, I don't know what to do. You cannot resist what you don't think exists. The blueprint for resisting the devil has always been resisting the devil. To like defeat the devil has always been to resist him, even at the Garden of Eden. But how many know you can't do that if you don't even know he exists? No wonder Job had such utter destruction. He had not a single defense. Job didn't resist the devil because, honestly, he didn't even know he should. Remember, Job didn't know Satan existed. He only thought the only power that exists was God. 
There was no other explanation that he had to even reason. But people, people point to the theology of Job as justification for the theology of trials. How comfortable are you aligning yourself with a theology of someone who didn't even know that Satan existed? You can't have proper understanding of God without proper understanding of the devil. This is like the fundamentals of our faith. If you're not sure of what the role of the devil is, how can you even be sure what the role of God is? And so we look to Job as like, it's, it's a story for us that's actually cautionary, not a blueprint for us. Because if we're not aware of what can steal from us, it will be stolen from us. If we're not aware of what God does and what he doesn't do, then we're going to confuse when we are stolen from. And Satan can do it all the while we're singing, he gives and takes away, you know. He's going to have his way and God is going to get the blame. But people point to these examples as how God uses Satan and permits him to come after you. Now look at me, there, there, there's nothing special about what Job had. There's nothing special about the situation in this book that says that Satan was given special access. Satan has the same access to people today as he did back then with Job. The book of Job, again, should be a warning against Satan for what he's capable of, not a blueprint for how we should respond, because he didn't respond. Let me point out a few things, because people like want to make you know, this, this instance with Job this special use case and build theology around it. In the Old Testament, Satan prowled around, right? He says, where did you come from, Satan? From roaming the earth, prowling around. 1 Peter 5.8, that Satan prowls around on earth in the New Testament. Old Testament the same, New Testament the same. In the Old Testament, Satan had power. We just looked at it. In the New Testament, Satan has power. In the Old Testament, Satan kills, steals, and destroys. In the New Testament, Satan steals, kills, and destroys. There's no special case here. We don't need to elevate the situation with Job and say, this allows us to understand how God will partner with Satan. Like, I thought the kingdoms were opposed to each other. I thought a kingdom divided cannot stand. If God is partnering with Satan, we're in trouble because that kingdom is not going to stand. Satan cannot be any ingredient to your theology of God's goodness at all. So Satan's access and weapons have not changed, but you have. Hallelujah that we're not Job. Hallelujah that we actually know better. Poor Job. I actually feel sad for him now. Yes, I know I'm beating up on Job. I'm being a little tough on him, I know. But he didn't know any better. And for that reason, I am sad. I'm actually all of a sudden just got sad for Job. <laughs> I just pressed through, yeah. But you're not, Job, because you are the temple of God. Do you realize that? You are the temple of God. So when people talk about God sending his trials, like God doesn't like, deface his own temple. That's not kind of silly thinking. That's kind of like self-hatred, isn't that? God coming against you. You know, it's like, well, he's coming against himself in that situation. I'm so confused. And so we, we don't look to Job because Job didn't have the Holy Spirit. He wasn't the temple of God. He didn't have direct access to God that we have. 
And we don't need to be afraid of Satan. We, uh, the end of the Bible, we win, right? If you're like afraid of the Bible, like I can tell you the secret, it ends well. We win. In fact, we already have one. But Satan wants you to be afraid. Satan wants you to have fear. Are you guys doing okay still? Now, though Job was upright, he was blameless, there was something off about Job. I'm sorry to pick on Job a little bit more. There was something off about Job. Job, in addition to not even knowing that Satan existed, was a man of fear. Job was a man of fear. In the middle of Job's destruction, in the middle of it, Job pauses to say this. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. In the middle of Job's destruction, he says this. Now, if you know in chapter 1, it talks about Job's kind of daily habits, a couple things. He does something that's kind of unusual. He goes and makes regular offerings on behalf of his children just in case one of them sinned or one of them cursed God in their heart. And it said, Job did this continually. Job's doing like this, like, preventative measures, <laughs> right? Like, just to make sure I'm going to go all the way. Now, from someone who gave their life to Christ about 4,000 times, I get trying to be really, really sure. I was like, you never can be too sure if you're going to heaven. Right? I was like, so Jesus, like, every altar call, the guy's like, you were here yesterday, man. It's like, I know, but I just want to make sure. Why? It's because I was riddled with fear. Totally riddled with fear that I didn't do it right. I didn't say the right words. I didn't do it the right way because I don't feel different and I don't want to burn in hell. Like, my entire life. That Satan allowed that fear of was I really saved to continually torment me and continually keep me separated from God. The reason it took me so long in my life to develop a vibrant relationship with God is because I had this, just this pillar of fear that I was so terrified that I was not saved. And that fear was instrumental in every single attack upon my faith. Is that It was always a question of, well, you're not really legit. So though Job was blameless, he was fearful. And the very thing that he feared came upon him. What was Job's fear again? That God would strike him. Right? Job didn't know Satan existed, right? Are you with me? Job, here is in the middle of his destruction, saying, shall I accept the good and not accept the bad from God? That's his theology that God takes away. He gives and takes away. That's Job's theology. And here he's saying, the very thing I feared has happened. Job feared God's destruction through trials and tribulations. Sounds like a lot of our modern theology. Sounds very similar that we're like, I, I never wanted my life to go too well because I'm sure that if my life ever got too good that God would like, you know, now you'll be humble, you know. 
What else did Job have to fear if he didn't believe in anything besides God? Job had to fear the Lord. Fear of the Lord, like literally. And not fear like is in awe, like my children like fear me, not because I'm going to punish them, but because they know my power to make things right. They recognize my role in their life, and they're like, you are dad. <laughs> and dad is like as high as it goes. And so that's the fear of the Lord, is that Job didn't have fear of the Lord. He had fear, like, uh, literally of the Lord. He feared God in a terrifying sense. And the truth is this, and this, what can we learn from this, is that fear invites the enemy. Fear invites the enemy. Bill Johnson has an amazing quote that I, you know like those quotes that you just can never get out of your mind? And I'm like so angry that I didn't come up with this because it's so good. It says this, that fear is a self-fulfilling prophecy. It invites the very thing you are afraid of. So good. It's funny how all the fears I had when I was younger, ironically, became true. I fear this, and like suddenly, like it wouldn't be long before I would have that. This relation's not going to work out, and it wouldn't. This business deal's not going to work out. It didn't. It was amazing. I'm like just completely aware that how I would put out fears, like chumming for the enemy to come and, and take from me. Behold, the power is in your hand. Not because God gave it, because man did. But what you believe to be true influences your future. That's why we're like, we're not like new age-ish, but we're kind of. <laughs> because we believe that your thoughts and your beliefs matter. Shocking, isn't it? That we have something called faith. We actually believe that faith matters. And we believe that what you dwell upon is what you will actually become. Because it takes no faith to say, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Zero faith required to say that. It takes zero faith to think that God steals from you. None. It takes all the faith to say, I'm righteous before him. I'm blameless before him. It takes faith to say, I'm the righteousness of God. That's like a tall order. It's like, oh, like I can't get there, but I'm the righteousness. I'm going to go for it. It takes no faith to feel guilty about your sins. It takes a lot of faith to feel forgiven for your sins. That's funny how that works. But when we partner with fear, we invite the very thing that we're afraid of, which is condemnation. If you don't feel forgiven for your fears, for your sins, you will never feel forgiven. Because Satan is going to partner with that fear. And this isn't new agey stuff. This is actually rooted in Proverbs 23.7. It says, for as he thinks within himself, so he is. Your thoughts about you matter. Your thoughts about who God is matters. Your thoughts about who Satan is matters. Your entire theology is being formed by what you believe about yourself, about God, and, by, and about Satan. I watched a recent Netflix documentary, I'm Not Your Guru. Anybody seen it? Tony Robbins? It's really good. It's like he's doing deliverance and ministry in his like in his uh, conferences. 
doesn't just have Jesus. A lot of F-bombs in the movie. I was shocked by that. But, but he gets, here's the thing about it, is that he partners with people's belief about themselves. What's so powerful for the people that he's working with is he actually gets them to believe what they believe about themselves. There's one thing that this guy's like, I'm effing unstoppable, I'm effing unstoppable, and he like becomes this like superhero guy because he's now partnered in his belief about what is. It's amazing the transformation that happens. Now, if you believe that God does not cause trials and does not send Satan to steal from you, then you are in the minority. Most people believe that God causes and sends trials to you. Tim Keller's quote this week, I love Tim Keller. I really love Tim Keller. He had a quote this week. It says, God will allow into our lives only the troubles that refine us. I love everything else about Tim Keller except for this. Because it goes back to that theology. I have a friend, and her comment was like, crazy. It's like, her name's Rachel. Oh, thanks. That's why my twin daughters died two weeks after birth, to refine me. Thanks. I was wondering. It's like, that's right. That's a harsh response. But who's going to go up to her as her twin daughters die two weeks after birth and say, this is just really God refining you. It's really for his glory. I believe Jesus is just repulsed by the same entire idea. But that's the modern theology of our time, and that's really the theology of Job's friends, was it not? If you've read the book of Job, where did Job's friends like align on the goodness of God? Were they like, no, it's like not God, but some other being that we're not aware of that's taken from you? Or were they like, yeah, God is like letting you have it, man? Was Job's friends not telling Job that God was the source of his calamity, right? At the end of the book, this is a, everyone should read Job chapter 42 because it clears up everything. This is what God says to his friends. This is verse 7. I am angry with you and your two friends because what you have not spoken, because you have not spoken the truth about me. The only things the friends said were things about God's role. Now wait. What about sickness and suffering? Didn't Jesus say, why is this man blind? Because it's for the glory of God that this man's blind. Do you guys know that passage? What do we do about that? I'll have to find out in two weeks. I'm out of time. I love you guys. Thank you for being here tonight. So why is it important for you to understand what Eric preached about? Because if you don't really sit down and sort through your life, for every single one of us, we have things in our life that there is no explanation for it. Some of the things that have happened to us, we've never even told anyone. And what Eric just preached can restore your heart to Daddy God if you'll sit down, go back to the podcast, and work this one through. I meet with people all the time, and I love it. I can hardly bear to see a person 
backed into a corner of hopelessness and despair without going after them and going, no, 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 just tell me your story. Because if you'll tell me your story and you'll tell me all of it, I can tell you the lies that the enemy has used to cause you to think that you're not worthy of real love. And that's because I've had to fight so hard myself. When I was your age, I didn't have a me. I actually had the, the person who mentored me in young adult ministry told me, if you ever tell anyone what you deal with, you'll never be in the ministry again. <clears throat> and so when I struggled, they didn't actually want to know what I was struggling with. They didn't want to know my failures because they didn't have any answers. And they believed that. But I'm here to tell you that if no matter what you struggle with in this house tonight, God has answers for you. And there's a hope that goes beyond circumstances. There's a hope that goes beyond facts. So whatever the enemy has beaten you with, it may be your culture. It may be your past. It may be things that were done to you that actually got you in a habit of doing things to yourself. It may be just choices that you got into. But I'm telling you, there is a hope that goes beyond all of it. And you can trust God. He is trustworthy. If you're here tonight and you're one of those people, and I'd like for all of you to stand if you could. If you're one of those people, the worship band wants to go up. You're one of those people that silently inside yourself, you think, I don't dare talk about my real life. Because if anybody understood, they'd reject me. I'm here to tell you, that's not true. It's not true. So if our prayer ministry team can come forward, we'd like to pray with you. Don't make the assumption that every person that comes up is uh, falling apart. And don't you, don't you be so proud if you need prayer to be unwilling to come up because you're afraid of what everybody will think. If I'm in a service like this and someone does an altar call and it applies to me, I go forward myself and I go immediately because I want to kill that part of me that's afraid to stand up and say, I need help. Because the day that dies in you is the day you die. That's how you become a shell. So I'm just encouraging you tonight, if the Holy Spirit spoke something to you while Eric spoke, then come forward. We'd love to pray with you because God has answers. He's for real. So as uh, the worship team leads us, thank you so much for coming tonight. We're grateful.